Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 197 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. How are you feeling today? Doing well. Doing well. We have uh, tax day behind us. So I think everyone in this country is probably happy to see that come and go. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, right in the heart of earnings season. So there's kind of a lot going on right now. Yeah. A lot of earnings news. Uh, I always like to remind people, if you see some kind of uncommon moves in a name, could be because they reported earnings and the markets reacting yeah, to it. Yeah, Netflix reported a couple, I think two days ago, and right after hours when they reported, it was down like maybe 10%, but then quickly just recovered like really quick after that. Yeah, so just be real careful because- This you know, happens with the illiquidity in after hours trading that, you know, it could be down 10% before the actual earnings call happens, just when they release earnings. And then when the earnings call happens, it could be like, oh, it's not as bad as it sounded. And then things pop right back up. Exactly. And also during those conference calls, which tend to be later that evening if they report after hours, they're um, going to get drilled by analysts on how the current quarter is going, what their guidance is. And those comments tend to be a little more unfiltered. And that's why maybe the stock then corrects. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but before we begin, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on April 19th. And this data is from YCharts. S&P 500 index up 1.1% for the month and up 8.2% for the year. Dow Jones Industrial Average up 1.9% for the month and up 2.3% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index down a half a percent for the month and up 16.2% for the year. The Russell 2000 Small Cap Index down 0.1% for the month and up 2.2% for the year. And the Vanguard All World X United States ETF uh, up 1.8% for the month and up 8.5% for the year. Uh, Three-month treasury rate at 5.16%, Matt, which is uh, something we haven't seen in a very long time. Two-year treasury rate at 4.24%, and the 10-year treasury rate at 3.6%. So I think that that three-month is pricing in the fact that the probability of them doing a quarter of a point at this May May 3rd meeting is is high. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm still in this camp. My opinion, they do that quarter, they're done. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it might not necessarily be rate cuts right after of that, course, but yes. rather just a, a pause. But the futures are pricing in a rate cut bef- sometime before the end of the year, probably late fall, November, December-ish. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, Moving on to big headlines, current events from the week. I just had a quote that I saw by Will Rogers, Matt, and it just made me chuckle. Uh, he says, the income tax has made liars out of more Americans than golf. <laughs> so I thought That's that, funny. that was uh, that was pretty good, and I think it was last year around tax time we talked about the letter that Don Rumsfeld uh, wrote to the IRS every year, like, saying I don't I know, have no that. idea if any of this is right because the tax code is so complex. 
And I uh, just wanted to throw it out there that if you feel that way, you're uh, not a alone. lot of other people feel that way you're too. Not yeah, alone. you're not you're not alone. So like we said, tax day is come and gone. Uh, and hopefully uh, most people don't have to worry about that uh, until 2024. So moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week. The first thing I had, Matt, was a tweet from Joseph Fami on April 12th. And I think this really just summarizes the current market environment that we're in right now. So he says, based on the emails slash text I've been getting, this range bound and choppy market is really testing people's patience. I realize we all want to make a fortune by Friday, but you have to adapt to what the market is giving us. You have to learn patience. And I can't stress this enough that, you know, in my opinion, a choppy sideways market is more frustrating than a down market because there's no defined trend and it's it's really hard you just get whipped around you get you have a stock or, or an etf or a mutual fund that's up a couple percent and then it comes back down and it's up a couple percent and it comes back down and we always say that the long term pattern of the market is two steps forward one step back and the best way to describe this choppy sideways trend is one step forward, one step back, where we're kind of not really getting anywhere. Yeah. Um, so earnings season could be a catalyst for this, either one way or the other. Um, so we'll just have to wait and see. My response is you, we have to acknowledge the resiliency of this market right now in the face of a very tough news data mm -hmm. chain. And yes, inflation's coming in. Yes, uh, we are starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel of these Fed rate hikes peaking here in the, in the near term. But you look at a lot of the news flow we've got year to date, it's been a silver platter for the bears or people who are pessimistic on this market. And the market, even though it's chopping sideways, is not making new lows. And I think that is very telling. And I think that is something that people need to be paying attention to. Yeah, exactly. And if you think of it kind of in phases, you know, we have when we start a new uptrend, then we get a little or this is historically how most market cycles have happened. Right. So you have an uptrend for however many amount of years at the top. Usually you get some choppy sideways movement, kind of what we're seeing right now. And then we have a downtrend. And then before we resume another uptrend or another bull market, we usually get some choppy sideways action before we go straight up. Now, this might feel like I'm lying to people right now because the most recent recession or bear market we had was COVID prior to 2022, and that was straight down and straight up. Mm -hmm. But that's very uncommon looking back at history and how these market cycles play out. So. While it might not feel like this is what should be happening, typically this it's is what happens when you look after at a bear market. And it's part of that repair process, too. So I know that people are probably frustrated. We're frustrated, you know, just sitting on our hands waiting for the market to do something. Um, but this is part of that recovery process. Well, my final comment is uh, if things play out the way I think they will, and over the next couple of years you start to see rates come back in, all of a sudden you're going to see money seeking a return again because it ain't gonna happen in T-bills. I right. know that there's a heyday right now in T-bills today with rates, but we gotta look long-term at this. I just don't think those rates are gonna be there a couple years from now. Right. My two cents. Right. Uh, second thing I had was a press, press release from Apple on the 17th titled, Apple's car, Apple Card's new high-yield savings account is now available, offering a 4.15% APY. 
Um, so, and again, you have to have their credit card. You have to have their credit card to, to have be access to eligible this. for this. So they start smart off, marketing move tying them together. By the way, yeah, absolutely. And they do. Uh, Apple has their own credit card for people that aren't familiar with that, and they created that in a partnership with Goldman Sachs. And this high yield savings account is also created in partnership with Goldman Sachs. So um, they say here in the press release that starting today, this was on the 17th, two days ago, three days ago, uh, Apple Card users can choose to grow their daily cash rewards with a savings account from Goldman Sachs, which offers a high yield annual percentage yield of 4.15%. That's a rate more than 10 times the national average. With no fees, no minimum deposits, and no minimum balance requirements, users can easily set up and manage their savings account directly from Apple Card in their wallet on their iPhone. Interesting. Uh, like you said, this is only available to people that have the Apple credit card. And the new savings account from Goldman Sachs builds upon the financial health benefits that Apple Card users already have. Uh, with absolutely no fees, daily cash on every purchase, and the tools that encourage users to pay less Apple Card interest. Uh, the maximum balance is 250000 and Apple Card users get 3% daily cash on Apple Card purchases made using Apple Pay with Apple and select merchants, including Uber, Uber Eats, Walgreens, Nike, Panera, T-Mobile, ExxonMobil, Ace Hardware, and as in addition to that, they get 2% daily cash when they use Apple Pay at other merchants and 1% on all other purchases. And there's no limit on the amount of daily cash users can receive. And that just means cash back. Right? Sure. Um, so it's interesting that Apple's kind of getting into finance a little bit more. Obviously, mm -hmm. it's not a huge part of their business, but... What this kind of makes me think of, Matt, is, you know, when Sears started back in the day, they were a retail uh, company, right? Correct. And then I think they, did they buy Dean Witter? I think it was, or they bought uh, something or associated or Disco Discover, 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 I think, card, yeah. It? So they got into uh, financials and they had a, a couple of brokerage firms and they made some acquisitions and they grew that financial part of their firm pretty quickly, offering credit cards and loans to, to people and their customers. And then eventually they spun that off and sell it. And just looking back on it, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty. They probably should have done the opposite, right? Because those businesses have become extremely profitable, yeah. and the Sears retail business has has kind of failed. Yeah. Um, so I wonder, you know, when we're 15, 20, 30 years down the road, if Apple is that going to be a similar right? If Apple is in a, a larger player in the the financial wealth management, financial health uh, industry, it's interesting to kind of watch the evolution of some of these. I want to throw out big tech and how they are evolving. It's gonna be interesting the next couple of decades because again, you know, you look back, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you look at the top 10 names by market cap in the S&P 500, those names have changed a lot. And it'll be interesting to see with the consistency of a lot of their earnings and the cash hoards that these companies have, 20, 30, 20, 30 years from now, Mark, are they still gonna be on top? Right. Good question. It'll be fun to watch this. Yeah, it will be. And inevitably, I'm sure 10 years from now, the top 10 are going to look extremely different from what it is they right very now. Very well could. Very well could. Right. Uh, last thing I had uh, was an article on Bloomberg by Suzanne Woolley, and this was on money market funds. So kind of um, in connection to what I just talked about. Okay. Um, you know, 
I think people for a long time just have accepted that they're going to get 0.02 to 0.2% on their checking and savings account at all these major banks, oh, yeah. where now there are more options. And it might be uh, a little bit of a barrier to change because if you do all of your banking at one bank, you don't want to have accounts in different places. But I think this article does a good job in addition to what we just talked about with the Apple high yield savings account is that there are other options other than just having your money at you know the big four, right? Bank of America, Chase, Wells Fargo, right? Mm -hmm. um, City. So with just a little bit of extra effort, there is some pretty good options out there right now. And one of those is, is money market funds. So uh, she starts off by saying money market funds are a kind of mutual fund. They're generally used to park cash that's waiting to be invested or needed in the near future. They hold short-term liquid instruments, including cash, certificates of deposit, and U.S. Treasury bills. They're required to be at least 10% invested in daily liquid assets and 30% in weekly listed assets. And the SEC, the, the Security Exchange Commission, is promote, uh, proposing to raise those uh, to 25% respectively and 50%. So when I say daily liquidity and weekly liquidity, meaning that those investments can be turned to cash in a day or in a week, okay? The underlying things that the fund owns. Correct. Um, she says there's no guarantee investors won't lose money. The funds are not insured by the FDIC like traditional savings accounts. Very important to note. Yep. But what's their appeal? The yield offered by these funds are a big draw. The largest retail one, the Fidelity Government Money Market Fund, ticker symbol SPAXX, had a 4.49% yield as of April 5th compared with a 0.06% national average on interest checking accounts and 0.37% on savings accounts, according to March data from the FDIC Corp. Even high-yield savings accounts have lower rates, with Marcus Goldman Sachs currently paying 3.9%. She says, quote, many banks take advantage of presumed to be sticky deposit account holders. Um, and, you know, again, there are other options out there, and it just takes a little bit of extra effort to find those options. Um, but with today and being able to do everything online, you can quickly, you know, open a brokerage account and move money from your Chase or Bank of America checking or savings account into this brokerage account to invest in a money market fund and get 10, 15, 20 times more on interest over a given year compared to what you're getting just at the bank. So um, just wanted to put it out there that there are other options out there. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, you have to take into consideration that those funds are not insured by the FDIC. Um, however, traditionally, you know, CDs and T-bills, uh, are about as safe as you can get other than just having it in pure cash, which yeah. with inflation is over the long term, not a, not a great thing. I love it. So, um, yeah. And, and, you know, for, for people that, you know, our clients that work with us, we use money market funds to hold cash accounts. So it is earning at least something, right? Sure. Um, so it's keeping up at least with the pace of inflation if we have funds that are waiting to be invested. That's right. Um, and that's traditionally, you know, if you work with another financial advisor, traditionally how he or she funds something are similar set up. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So if you're looking uh, for some more juice or some more yield on this stuff, do some research. Uh, do some, some research some on options it. options out there. Um, but 
you know, if the futures are correct in that by the end of the year we're going to get a rate cut, uh, these yields might not be as high as they are for very long. Next time we do the podcast together, you and I should have a little roundtable about the topic. Our financial planning topic of that week should be the discussion of how much somebody should keep in savings, mm-hmm. because I think that's a that's a that's a fun topic. Um, I think different uh, wealth advisors have different viewpoints on this topic, and I think that'd be a good roundtable because a lot of people could be thinking that as they're listening to or watching this podcast right now. Yeah, and that'd be good to talk about because you know let's rewind to. T- 2019 2020 yep if people had a chunk of money that they wanted to do something with because they didn't need the money for another six to 12 months because they're buying a house or they have to get a new car or paying college tuition bills what have you people were like there's no option i mean like i can't even like put it in a high yield savings or checking account because that's only getting me you know one or two percent markets were yielding zero yeah because interest rates were so low and now that has changed which i think is a better thing for people because at that time people were looking at okay for the next you know six to twelve months i'm gonna put it in a crypto account or i'm just gonna put it in the stock market because we can't lose money in stocks because they've been going up for the past five that years. was a thought process that right yeah. which is which is dangerous Very. um so now there are options out there for if you need short-term juice on a large chunk of cash that you know you're gonna need t-bills or, or high yield savings accounts are a good option now where you can actually get something so um turn it over to you all right So my first piece, and again, I'm just always looking for these tea leaves on inflation. Uh, We got an update on on housing inflation. And as a reminder for our listeners and viewers, Mark, outside of food and energy, what's the other uh, top component of the consumer price index? Housing. Housing, baby. So this is a piece that's from uh, our friend Charlie Bellello on April 17th. He posted a chart from Redfin that uh, does the analysis of what the going uh, inflation rate is for rents here in the United States. And so um, this actually surprised me that the rents year over year for March, they came in at down 0.4%. So I want to make sure that um, we're speaking the same language because sometimes clients, they see this data. And when we talk about inflation, we typically talk about inflation on a year-over-year basis. And I think that there is um, a misconception among investors that inflation, there's a chance inflation could go back to what it was pre-pandemic. And though anything's possible, that would be defined as disinflation, Mm -hmm. where you actually have prices reverting back. What I want to make clear to individuals is that what the Federal Reserve is trying to do right now is not necessarily cause disinflation to take prices back to where they were pre-pandemic. What they're trying to do is get this inflation to top off and resume around 2%. That's what they're attempting to do right now, right? Mm -hmm. I want to make that clear. Because some people think what they're trying to do is get prices back to pre-pandemic, and that's not what they're trying to do. No. Does that make sense? Yes. So it's just interesting that one of the biggest housing, uh, the biggest components of CPI outside food and energy, Mark, went negative year over year. Yeah, and this is a hard one, too, because all the housing data that we get and for, like, rents and everything, it's all, it's 
lags by quite a bit. The right? way that, yeah, so the way that, yeah, this is real time. The government's like five, six months behind right now. Right. So you don't see it show up in the inflation numbers until, you know, you're five or six months down the road. Yeah. So, so it's good to, to see that in real time. To me, this is suggesting that, you know, a large component of this five to six months from now is really going to help bring those inflation numbers down. Yeah. I mean, you had it when the data came out here earlier in April, as a reminder, the year over year headline number for the consumer price index came in at plus five percent. The previous month when that data was released, it was plus 6%. That's coming in. Now, I don't want us to assimilate. It's going to keep coming down by 1% per month till it gets to 2. That's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and it could. I just don't think so. I'm trying to use my language appropriately. But you're seeing the trend right now. So far, is inflation's coming in and cooling. Yeah. Okay. My next thing, I have two more pieces, and they're connected. But the data is a little different, but it supports... I think um, an interesting topic that a lot of people aren't talking about. So the first piece is something called extreme short interest. Not to get too far into the weeds, Mark, you're our firm's chief, chief investment officer. Um, when you short something, are you wanting that to go up, down? Can you kind of just 30 seconds, what does it mean to short something? So shorting the market is just the opposite of what you know, I would say 90% of investors do. You buy something expecting it to go up. Well, when you short something, you borrow shares from somebody else and sell it to somebody else because you think it's going to go down. Mm -hmm. So if you borrow 100 shares of ABC company and it's at $100 a share yep. and you sell it to somebody else at $100 to share, you're thinking, okay, I have a thesis that this stock is going to go down and I already have it pre-planned in my head, I'm gonna buy those shares back at $90 and I'm gonna net that $10 per share profit. Yes. Right? So it's just the opposite of buying, shorting the market is selling something at a higher point, expecting to buy it back at a lower point and then return those shares to the person that you bought it from. That's right. And then so on the other side- or borrowed from. Let's just go just a little bit deeper. Give people the warning about what could happen on the upside, because a lot of people that they'll hear this and they'll be like, oh, well, yeah, sometimes I think a stock's going to go down. That sounds kind of fun. I'm going to try shorting. Yeah. So let's just go on the reverse of that ex example. So let's say you borrow the, the ABC stock, 100 shares, and you sell them at $100 per share. Well, if that goes against you and all of a sudden three weeks later, that stock that you sold at $100 per share is now at $120 per share, you're down $20 per share. And at some point, you have to buy those shares back and return them to the person you bought it for. So now you're in the position where you're playing the game of waiting to see if that stock comes back down. But... The risky part about that is that stock can continue to rise and you're going to continue to pay more money to buy those shares back and return them to their owner. So there's virtually, you know, unlimited loss, which potential. is potential unlimited loss. And when you have a lot of people that are short a certain stock and it keeps going up in price, they eventually have to say, all right, I'm cutting my losses. I'm going to what we call cover my position, buy those shares back and just take the loss and give them back. 
And when you have a lot of that happening at the same time, it's what we call a short squeeze. Yes. So even though people are betting and have a lot of bets out there that the market or a certain stock is going to go down, if there's enough buying pressure from other people out there in the market, it might force them to cover their positions, which just jacks that price up even further. You did an excellent job explaining this. And when people come and they say, what was going on with, for example, that AMC stock a couple of years ago? Mm -hmm. What Mark just told you is exactly what was going on with a lot of these meme stocks a couple years ago. You had a group of investors uh, come together online and say, ooh, we see all these institutions are shortening these names. Let's, let's take it to the big guy and let's buy these stocks and let's hurt them. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what you described is what we saw happen. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying We're advocating be it. before or, uh, yeah, I'm not advocating for We're or against it, but this. it's just, it's a more advanced method of, of money management that unless you're if you don't do it right and your risk management's not in place, you can get hurt pretty yeah, quick. I would say, unless you are extremely sophisticated, I would not even talk about shorting. The reason I'm bringing it up is to talk about market sentiment. So this is from the um, CFTC, okay, the Commodity Futures Trading from April 17th, okay. Speculator, including individual investors and hedge funds, etc., their net positioning in S&P 500 futures market uh, fell to negative 14.5% of open interest in uh, the traders report on April 7th. This represents the highest level of short interest in S&P 500 futures since September of 2007. That's quite a long data set. We've had a lot of rockiness since uh, September of 07, Mark. And to see positioning right now by the market be that extreme short on S&P futures was an interesting data point. because. When I see things get that extreme, I think through the lens of a contrarian. Yeah. If everyone's thinking it's gonna go this way, you and I know that there tends to be a chance it's gonna zig when everyone thinks it's zagging. Right. Okay? Right. Yeah, and I'm just I'm just pulling up the chart. Where are we at? Where are we here? So September of two thousand and seven. Yes, sir. So that was Oh, well, they, they got it right at that point. That was pretty much right at the top before everything fell apart um, was September of 2007. And I'm not saying, you know, that that's, that's going to happen this time around. But we also were in a, a pretty severe uptrend from the early 2000s, right around 2003 after the tech blow up, up until September of 2007, which is right before everything kind of fell apart. But think of it this way. How many bad things have occurred on a short-term basis mm -hmm. that would have caused a lot of people to kind of speculate on the short side since September of 07 and to have it that extreme now is very interesting to me. Yeah, it's interesting um, because there's, you know, some other data that we look at is insider buying, meaning, you know, uh, executives at these companies, uh, you know, are they buying more stock or are they selling more stock? And over the past couple of months, they've been buying more stock. So those two things are kind of contradicting each other where you have insiders that are like, hey, I'm optimistic that my company's stock is gonna go up. And then you have you know, the CFTC report saying, hey, you know, we think the market's gonna go down. 
be interesting to see who wins that that tug of war. That's right. And you talked about the short squeeze on individual names that can work on the indices as well. Yeah, absolutely. Jenna, I love a good short squeeze. <laughs> I'm always usually going into Mark's office. I'm like, it's a short squeeze. I love it. <laughs> All right. My last item builds on this thesis, though. And this is a article from Bloomberg. Investors are the this is the title, sir. Are you ready? Investors are the most bearish on stocks versus bonds since 2009. That's clickbait for me. OK, you're on Bloomberg. You see that I cannot just walk away from that. I have to click it. OK, so I click it. And then I see this chart. Uh, Jenna's going to put this chart up for our YouTube viewers. It's going to be in our show notes. And what this chart is, is it's a survey by Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey. And what it does is it shows on a relative basis the net percentage overweight of stocks versus bonds. Okay. Now, I got some verbiage from the article I'm about to read. But what you're seeing on this chart is that positioning, portfolio weightings, another way of saying it, they most of these professional mutual fund managers are really underweight equities compared to the last 20 years and you have to go back to the great financial crisis to see such in my opinion when i see this a bearish positioning mm -hmm. and i think when i saw this chart what came to my mind is this is the reason in my opinion the market's so resilient because even though you're seeing some negative headlines year to date, guess what? Most of the worry warts have already sold. There's tons of cash on the sidelines. One, people could argue that a lot of this negative news is priced into these names. And you got people who are extremely pessimistic pounding the table, their, hand, their hands probably bright red because like, I can't believe the market's not going down on this news. It's like, guess what? Everyone's underweight stocks, buddy. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read this uh, snippets from this article, um, and then I would uh, love your feedback. Interrupt me if you think of something, okay? Investor allocation to equities relative to bonds has dropped to its lowest level since the global financial crisis as worries about a recession take hold, according to Bank of America's Global Fund Manager Survey. In the most bearish survey of the year, the first after banking turmoil roiled the markets last month, investors indicated that fears of a credit crunch have driven up bond allocations to a net 10% overweight to the highest since March of 2009. A net 63% of participants now expect a weaker economy, Mark, the most pessimistic reading since December of 2022. Still, the bearish turn in sentiment is a contrarian signal for risk assets, the strategist that they interviewed, Michael Hartnett, wrote in a note on Tuesday. If, quote, consensus lust for recession, end quote, isn't satisfied in the second quarter, the pain trade would be a rally in bonds and bond yields and bank stocks, he said. Some strategists, including J.P. Morgan Chase's um, chief investment officer, remains cautious about the outlook for the overbought technology stocks that have helped fuel this year's gains. Managers are the most overweight defensive stocks versus cyclicals since U.S. equities bottomed last October. Uh, a credit crunch and a global recession are seen as the biggest tail risks to the markets, followed by high inflation that keeps central banks hawkish, says Hartnett. Systematic credit event and worsening geopolitics are also among the risks, according to the survey. And they ran this in early April, 6th through the 13th, and it um, canvassed about 250 participants with $641 billion in assets that they manage. Allocation to cash remained above 5% for 17 consecutive months. 
this second only to the 32-month dot-com bear market. So cash levels have been high for some time. And about 80% expect the U.S. debt ceiling to be raised by September. Any comments, thoughts? Well, yeah, when you look at this chart that you discussed a few minutes ago, the net percentage overweight equities versus bonds, you know, we're at a place that we haven't been at, it looks like, since March of 2009. And as you were talking, I again pulled up the chart of the S&P 500 and Guess when stocks bottomed in the great financial crisis? It was March of 09, baby. It was March of 2009. I had a heyday in April. Really April was just a rip-your-face rally. May was kind of a head fake, kind of consolidated. And then June was another rip-your-face rally. I so why, why, am I bringing, why is this important? This is important because people were the most overweight bonds to stocks right at the bottom. And we're seeing a similar situation. Am I saying the bottom is in? Absolutely not. Anything can happen. But my fear for people is that they get too conservative at the wrong time. And that's what we saw in March of 2009. You had people already go through losing 50% of their money, and then they make the decision to get more conservative, right? And then you miss that rally higher when the market recovers. And... Could there eventually be, be a period where the market doesn't recover? Yeah, of course, anything's possible. But like we always do, using history as our guide, we've always recovered to new all-time highs after some nasty bear markets and after some nasty recessions. And again, if you're a long-term investor, you should be you know, foaming at the mouth, being like, hey, this is a great opportunity to keep contributing to my 401k. I'm buying in while stocks are still low. Um, but I think that this is pretty telling that people tend to get more conservative at the wrong time, uh, where this is, in my opinion, based on people's risk tolerances, obviously, uh, this is a time where you could potentially get more aggressive. Well said. I have nothing to add. You did a perfect job there. So... Um, all right, Matt. Well, that's everything that I had. Anything else that you want to share with listeners before we wrap up for 197? Uh, no. Next May, uh, next Fed meeting is May 3rd. That's going to be a lot of eyes on that. Um, but no, besides that, uh, I hope everyone is starting to enjoy the NBA playoffs. I am a New York Knicks fan. They play tonight? Uh, uh, they play Friday night. And we are tied in the series 1-1. It's back to New York for two games. And, um, yeah, everyone, I'm rooting for the Knicks hardcore right now. Nice. Well, I'm good. I'm glad you have uh, a horse in the fight. My Buffalo Sabres tried to make a late-year uh, playoff push but fell just a little bit short. So I uh, don't have a horse in, in the NHL playoffs this year, but I still think playoff hockey is uh, biasly uh, the best sport to watch for the playoffs. I think the environment is just electric in those arenas. So that's what uh, I will be spending my free time on uh, this weekend, just catching up on some NHL playoffs. All right, partner. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in to episode number 197 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week, and we'll see you next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on the 
social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.